0: To whom would you write your last letter as your time came to an end, if you could be in proximity to somebody and you could choose exactly what you'd say to them, knowing this is your last chance to say it, to whom would you speak and what would you say? In Scripture, the last letter that Paul wrote was that of 2 Timothy, and it's one of the three books we're going to study in this next quarter First Timothy, second Timothy, and Titus collectively are called the pastoral epistles because there are letters written from Paul to Timothy and to Titus, both of whom were pastors. And it's from these books that we get the requirements for an overseer, an elder, deacon, deaconess. This is where the offices of ministry are laid out. Now, that does not mean That because these books are written to pastors, they apply only to pastors. It's not as though God has standards for holiness for pastors and for everybody else. It is a free-for-all. No. These letters were written in the context of a beautiful discipleship relationship. I believe that there are Pauls in this room who are by the Holy Spirit of God being assigned Timothys so that you would make disciples You would walk alongside someone in their faith the way that Paul does Timothy. And I do pray for a direct application of the immediate intent of these books, that if God is calling you to ministerial office, that you would answer the call. Likewise, any of us who were already Christians before we endeavored to study the gospel of Mark Many of us already were blessed by that book. If you were a Christian before we started Mark and we studied the gospel of Mark and it blessed you, would you raise your hand? All right, see? You're gonna be blessed by this study. You're gonna be challenged by this study. And even if you're not called into a ministerial office because of these books, I do pray that you'd be called into the story that is the thread that runs the length of this tapestry that is 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, and that is the discipleship relationship. Paul, who is your Timothy? Timothy, find a Paul and be mentored. We first met Timothy in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16. All right, here's, here's where we first encountered Timothy. Paul came also to Derby and Lystra. Okay, this is, this is Timothy's hometown. It's in the, the uh, Roman province of Galatia uh, in modern-day Turkey. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. That's beautiful to me, that the church grew in faith as it grew in number, that it grew in number as the faith increased. So here we get the backstory on Timothy's birth. This is the last we ever hear from his father. We don't know exactly what happened. He could have died. He could have left the family. In either regard, it did leave Timothy in a, a place of turmoil. He was not Jewish enough for the, the Jewish men in his town to fully accept him. And so he probably wasn't Greek enough for the Greeks in this town. So to overcome this tremendous cultural barrier, Timothy allows himself to be circumcised as a grown man. That is dedication to the gospel. And it's all for the sake of reaching the Jewish men in his hometown that wouldn't take him seriously before. And this leaves a fatherless wound in Timothy's heart. But watch as we study, God's going to provide for Timothy. Now, we're going to begin 1 Timothy today, but in light of learning more about the context and the backstory to Timothy, I do want to draw from 2 Timothy. Is it okay if we take a bite of dessert first? Let's. (laughs) <laughs> Second Timothy 1, 3-7, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Can we thank God for the ministries of grandmothers and mothers? Eunice Lewis, I mean, this is is where kids' ministry began. Did you see that? And it began in a grandmother and a mother to raise this young boy who was culturally caught up in the middle and didn't have a father figure present. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Can I read that again? Because I will. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. It's just for context, but for some of you, that was the sermon already. That's that's it. That's why God called me here today. Because you were tempted under cowardice, but not anymore. Because that spirit of cowardice doesn't come from God. It comes from the enemy. God gave you a spirit of power you've been less than loving but that inclination doesn't come from god that came from the world god gives you a spirit of love you've been lax and letting your self-control slide and letting habits and sin creep in that you know are contrary to the will of god and against your call unto holiness but you know that inclination is not of god god has given you a spirit that leads to self-control all of this is spoken over timothy in this laying on of hands described in 2 Timothy is what inspires a modern day practice of ordination in which someone who is called to be an overseer like Timothy here is ordained thus. He grew up to do ministry in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus, culturally, is a unique context, heavily pagan and debaucherous culture, a society that was home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and was heavily opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only in its spiritual practices, but even in its its very economy was stacked against the gospel of Jesus Christ. So to understand Timothy, we must understand his world, must understand his cultural context. I I grew up in, in Pensacola, Florida. So if you look at the state of Florida, the very top, there's Pensacola, that's where my wife and I are from. That's where we were born. And in Pensacola, you have bodies of water everywhere. You have, the, you have Pensacola Bay and Escambia Bay, and you have the Gulf of Mexico. So there's wildlife everywhere. And when you grow up as a kid in Florida, you're just taught certain things. You're given little tips, and you're given advice by your parents, and even cute little rhymes that will help mitigate the chances of you dying a violent death because there's lots of wildlife in Florida that could kill you. right, like we even had rhymes to be able to tell the difference between like a coral snake and a milk snake. All right, a coral snake has red on yellow. All right, I was five years old and I remember being taught this by my grandmother and my mother, my own Lois and Eunice taught me, red and yellow, kill a fellow. I said, okay, got it. So red and yellow are touching each other. You don't mess with that, because you'll die. But if there's a black stripe in between, You could play with that one. That's a milk snake. (laughs) We were taught about the shapes of their eyes. You can look at the shape of a snake's eyes to tell if it's going to kill you or not. We also, when we rode our bikes down the trails through the woods and things like that, you had to stay clear of the bushes because moccasins will jump out and chase you. I have seen this. Moccasins are mean. (laughs) They will follow you. When we would grow up camping, my favorite place to camp was Fort Pickens. It's this old fort that had been refurbished and used over the years, and it's right there on, right there on the Gulf of Mexico. Battery Langdon was like one of our favorite places to, to, to play in the surf. And, and when you surf in Florida, you gotta make sure you don't surf at sunrise or at sunset because that's when the sharks eat. All right, I've made this mistake before and paddled out and seen a giant bull shark fin right at the nose of my board. So you grow up being taught you don't surf at sunrise, don't surf at sunset because you'll die. There basically is an alligator in every in every lake in all of Florida. Okay? And anywhere there's water, there's something that could eat you. And for, for Floridian kids, I mean, you kind of stay clear of alligators, but sometimes it's unavoidable. And you could tell the size of an alligator by looking at the distance between the tip of its nose and the arch over the top of its eyes. You never see the whole alligator, you just see that sticking up out of the water. All right, so it's a judgment call, right? If the nose and the eye tops are, are, are you know, are they close enough together for you that you're comfortable with that, you could survive without a finger, go ahead and play. <laughs> but if they're too far apart, get out of the water because you'll die. Uh, these, uh, also, when it comes to, to spiders, uh, there are all sorts of spiders that live all over Florida, they're very prevalent, and if they bite you, you'll die. And uh, they're everywhere, they live at the thresholds, doorways, right? black widow spiders, the females are jet black with a red hourglass figure on them, and the, the, the males are brown, and they, li- they literally, when you walk into any building, or out of any building in Florida, there's probably a small creature there that could bite you and you'll die. And we, were just, we just learned to avoid these things. Likewise, brown recluse spiders are all over Florida, and they like to hide in folds of cloth or in shoes. So I grew up kind of shaking my shoes because there might be a brown recluse spider in there, and if it bit me, I would die. <laughs> I was having a conversation with a friend of mine named Garrett. He was helping me film something, and he's from Michigan, the opposite side of the U.S. from Florida, a totally different climate. And, and I was sitting and having lunch with him and telling him some of these, you know, you know, the little tips, the things that parents tell their kids so that they don't get eaten. You know? And he said, Jesse, this is not normal. <laughs> Most kids don't grow up worried about being eaten. But to me, it was totally normal. I grew up thinking that. I just, I figured, okay, these are my natural predators. Kids in other states have to worry about being eaten too. I just thought that everybody was worried about dying a violent death their whole childhood <laughs> and that it was totally normal. You know, you drag your feet through the water so you don't get stung by a stingray and die. But here's what's funny too, like that, that was just my cultural context. That's what was normal to me, right? But ask, ask somebody from Australia, they'll tell you that people from Florida are sissies. <laughs> Why, because that's, that's their cultural context. It's just normal to them. Apply that interpretive lens to the text. There are certain things to Timothy that are just normal, that are weird to us. There are certain things that are normal to us that are weird to Timothy. It's very important that we understand this through the cultural context, especially when we get to chapter two. So read all of this through that lens. We get to listen in as Paul mentors his beloved Timothy, his son in the faith. Let's look at, First Timothy, chapter one, verse one. This is page 991, and the Bible's in the seats with you. I love starting off a brand new book of the Bible, don't you? Shall we feast? Yes. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now, I know I just read a certain politically charged word in that passage. And you're asking, like, is he gonna go back and elaborate on that? And go back and unpack that further, and the answer is yes, we will go back and talk about the word liars. (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) I thank him who has given me strength Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus." The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. All right, Paul's talking about his own story, the ultimate Jew among Jews, all right, a Pharisee the ultimate Jewish leader who then becomes the author of much of the New Testament to minister to Gentiles. The very next verse we're gonna read is the verse that Jonathan Edwards credits for his salvation. Jonathan Edwards is the famous Puritan pastor and author of the famed sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Here it is. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have shipwrecked their faith, among whom are Herminius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is the opening chapter of the letter from Paul to his beloved disciple, Timothy pastoring in the context of Ephesus. Did you notice something different about his opening, his opening greeting? Right? The, the letters that Paul writes, we call the Pauline letters. In most Pauline letters, there's this common greeting. The salutation that he typically uses is grace and peace. But look at, look at how this one opens. Look at verse two. Grace, mercy, and peace. The word mercy is included in the typical Pauline salutation. This mercy is a theme throughout the book. Paul compares himself with the false teachers who are confronted in verses three through seven. And he talks about their speculations versus Timothy and Paul's own love for God. And he talks about how he was once an insolent blasphemer and persecutor of Christians. And verses 12 through 16, but he was shown mercy. This mercy is another theme that you're gonna see throughout the book of 1 Timothy. Now did did you see something else in verse two? To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now I shared with you where we first met Timothy in Acts 16. I shared with you a little bit more of Timothy's backstory in 2 Timothy. You know his backstory, you know that his father wasn't around that his mother was a Jew, but his father was a Greek. And as a result, he was rejected by the Jewish men in his town to the point that he had to even undergo circumcision as a grown man just to be heard out by them. I mean, imagine what kind of wound that does to the heart of a young man who's just rejected. He's not Jewish enough for the Jews and not Gentile enough for the Greeks. So you and I may have read past that, but I believe that when Timothy first received this letter, he wept at that greeting. My child in the faith. As you're fatherless, did you know that God would provide you a spiritual father? It can happen right here at Highlands Community Church. It can come from the very indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God himself. This is a beautiful story in which Paul, who has been raised up in the utmost, I mean, just the very zenith of Jewish pedigree, to reach out and embrace this young boy who grew up rejected by the Jewish leaders in his own hometown, to reach out across ethnic lines and embrace Timothy as his son in the faith. I think this is beautiful. I think this is an admirable practice. And if God is calling you to disciple somebody, would you consider what Paul did here? And that is reach across cultural lines, reach across ethnic lines. I think there is nothing more beautiful in this world to have in common with somebody from a different culture, a different race, a different ethnicity, than the thing that saves both of your souls, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe that revival by the power of the Holy Spirit of God is the only means by which our culture will ever see meaningful racial reconciliation. We need revival and nothing else will do. So reach across cultural lines and make disciples and show the world how reconciliation is done. Amen? I think this is exquisite. This is Paul reaching out to Timothy who is rejected by both sides of the cultural lines in which he lived between. He is his spiritual son. I think this is a beautiful example for Christians. I think it fulfills the great commission when we make disciples of what? All nations. Did you know that there are red letters in the opening chapter of Acts as Jesus spoke, you will receive power. And my Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. There are cultural implications there. That's why the good Samaritan has salience at all. And then to the ends of the earth. I think that covers every imaginable cultural boundary because it covers every geographic boundary. Here we stand on the opposite side of the sphere from which those words were first spoken. Reach across cultural lines to make disciples. Reach across ethnic lines to make disciples. It is what Paul did with Timothy. And I think it's the most beautiful and only lasting method for racial reconciliation. In verses three and four, Paul points out myths and genealogies. What is he talking about here? Amidst the the vast genealogical records that were available to Jewish authorities, a practice had arisen of spinning tomes of epic fairy tales, embellishments and fabrications about one's own ancestry to look at a list of names and say, oh yes, I'm descended from such and such. It's basically the spiritual equivalent to my dad could beat up your dad. And it's all meaningless, It's just speculation, just making up stories. It is pointless. And Paul is calling them out for this practice. He's instead, look at verse 5, the aim of our charge, not speculation, the aim of our charge is love. Do you see the word our? Our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. Here's how the, the Christian Standard Bible renders that verse. Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. I love the use of the word our. Paul's saying, I have the same instruction as you. It's love. My instruction is your instruction. My commissioning is your commissioning. My ordination is your ordination. You and I have both been called to the same office, the same mission, we serve the same God. I love this mentor-mentee relationship that runs the length of these books. And I remember my own, my own mentor in the faith. I've had multiples of them, but one in particular who comes to mind is is Jeff Howard. Jeff Howard is the lead pastor at Heritage Baptist Church in Pensacola, Florida. I can still hear his voice. I can still hear my own Paul. I can still hear his instructions over me. No, Jesse, it's not a good idea to host a lock-in with 150 teenagers and not enlist any volunteers to help you. (laughs) Still hear his voice. No, Jesse, it's not good that we're currently in Brazil and you just now realize you didn't ask anybody to cover your class. (laughs) No, Jesse, it's not a good idea to advertise youth camp, having paid, uh, to, to pay the full deposit for youth camp and not adequately advertise it. These are the mistakes that I made when I was Jeff's pain in the tail. But he's so patient with me, so loving towards me. I can still hear Jeff's voice. I can still hear my mentor's voice. I can still hear my own Paul, speaking wisdom over me as the two of us serve side by side in this same commissioning. What he's talking about in verse five, the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. By the way, does that sound like a warm blanket to you? A pure heart, a good conscience. Oh, that's out of style these days. Shall we bring it back? A sincere faith. If you look at that and you suspect like that would be nice, I'd like to try that on for size. You're exactly right, you're exactly right. If you're having trouble sleeping, having trouble putting up with your own reflection, would you you try on Paul and Timothy's own instruction, their own goal, love that comes from a, a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith? I'll bet you'll sleep like a baby with a clear conscience before God and man, redeemed by the Holy Spirit of God. Look at how this set them apart from the false teachers of their day. who get this stinging indictment in verses six and seven. All right, look at verse seven. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. If you haven't seen this before, just turn on the news and give it 15 minutes. You'll see this. I mean, it's a deadly combination. It's one thing to commit an error, okay? Errors are okay, they're not that big of a deal. Because if you commit an error, out of ignorance, you can be corrected, and then you're correct. Pride is a bit trickier because it's very difficult to detect. Pride and ignorance combined are a particularly toxic concoction. All right, if you are ignorant and prideful in your ignorance, right, if, if you never gain self-awareness, you never get corrected. You'll just continue in your ignorance and continue in your pride. Now, this actually seems to serve people well in politics, so go forth and prosper if that's your calling. But if you do gain self-awareness, you fall twice from this lofty peak. Once you fall because you're corrected in your error, and you fall again because apparently you've been delusional about yourself all along. That is a particularly difficult fall and the rocky crag at the bottom of the chasm is unsympathetic. This is a difficult place to be. When asking questions on the future, when thinking about plans, aspirations, dreams, goals, and ideas, preface your speculations and thoughts and ideas with, okay, I might be delusional, but. (laughs) You never ask the question like, am I completely delusional? You might be delusional. I think that's part of where self-awareness comes from, is considering the idea that you could be completely inaccurate in your own view of yourself. This is why Paul encourages Timothy to observe the arrogant pride of the false teachers in his era and to avoid that practice. If you're nonplussed as to how to conduct yourself, if you look at this text and you think about, okay, ignorance and pride and prideful ignorance, I mean, like if you're starting to feel a little uneasy, because you think like, okay, that might be me, it probably is. And, and if it probably is, here's, here's a great way to respond, just with humility. Okay, when you're in doubt as to how to act, just opt for humility. Just be humble and be teachable. This is a difficult, difficult spot. Have you ever seen somebody speak pridefully in their ignorance, and they're the only person in the room who doesn't realize it? Do you remember English class? Do you remember your friend? Okay, an arbitrary name, just Derek Nelson. <laughs> right? Got up in front of the English class, was called out by the teacher, clearly didn't read the book that he was presenting on. Gets up and gives a perfect recitation of the plot to Back to the Future 3. But the book was Hamlet and then confidently slams the book down on his desk, having never opened it, and now convinced he doesn't have to. Have you seen this? You'll see this as well in critics of Christianity, critics of the Bible today. I am astounded at the number of critiques that are levied against the Bible by people who obviously haven't read the book. Okay, when you're in English class, and somebody gives a presentation, and it's clear that they haven't read the book, everybody knows. Okay, so imagine, imagine what you look like critic of the Bible, when you call this book out, having not read it, okay, do not be prideful in your ignorance. Rather, I want to invite you, I encourage you, serious, read this with humility and read it as it was intended to be read. Don't read it the way that you would read Mein Kampf. Read it the way it was intended. Read the Gospel of John. That's the perfect place to start because it's written in the beginning of the New Testament. We're in the New Testament era. John was directed at Gentiles. That's likely what you are. If you grew up in a Jewish household, begin with Matthew. But read the book. Please, read the Gospel of John. Read the Bible. I'm astounded at the number of critics of the Bible who obviously have not read it. They're actually in the Bible. They inadvertently prove the Bible by criticizing the Bible in prideful ignorance. So Paul is calling out that same kind of false teaching that still exists today. It's a stinging indictment, but an accurate one. And if you feel like you might be under the same accusation, would you conduct yourself with humility instead? Look at verses eight through 11. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane. Paul is about to draw upon the 10 commandments for what follows. That's interesting, isn't it? There is a school of thought, a theological conviction known as antinomianism, which seeks to completely do away with the law altogether. I believe that there are laws in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Christ, absolutely. He has fulfilled the law and the prophets are all summed up in this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Not only are we freed and delivered from certain aspects of the Old Testament ceremonial law, but we ought not act upon those laws, even if there were a temple set up for Old Testament Jewish worship in Jerusalem today. Here's what I mean by that. At Passover, if there were a temple set up on the Mount at Jerusalem, there's not, currently there's a mosque there, but if there were the Temple of Solomon rebuilt, I would not, with my family, go and sacrifice a lamb on Passover. Why? Because that act believes that Shows that you believe God's going to send the Lamb one day. You you sacrifice that Lamb in hopes that the Lamb will one day come. Christian, the Lamb of God has already come. He is Jesus, He was crucified, and He rose again. So there are certain aspects of the law the apodictic laws, the ceremonial laws, the societal laws that really taught Israel how to function like a theocracy and then a monarchy that no longer apply today. But there are other laws like the Ten Commandments. These are the moral laws, and they flow from the very character of God. It is not within the character of God that we would murder, lie, commit adultery, steal. These things flow from the very character of God, and it is not the character of God that has changed. Rather, it is the era of the covenant we find ourselves in. The Old Testament is the beginnings, the foundation for the new covenant, which the author of Hebrews describes as a better covenant by far. There is a final covenant that lies on the other side of revelation, and it is once again perfection. But in the meantime, here we live in which God's character has unchanged. It is not as though the work of Jesus has made murder okay. No, the character of God towards murder is just as against murder as it was in the Old Testament. Watch Paul use commandments five, six, seven, maybe eight, and definitely nine in order in the coming verses. All right, those who strike their fathers and mothers. All right, what is the fifth commandment? Honor your father and mother. For murderers, that's commandment number six. The sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality. All right, this is commandment seven, against against adultery. Enslavers some, some say this is an, uh, he's evoking commandment eight. I don't quite see that here, but I do see, once again, speaking on the issue of criticizing the Bible while ignorant of it, I'm still seeing uses of the Bible as though it condones slavery. It obviously does not. It obviously does not. In fact, sla- enslavers are condemned to hell, apparently, based on what I just read. Then I see commandment nine: Liars listed next. Perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So if you started off this list of sins and you thought you were okay, as we started moving through it, okay, I'm clear of that sin, I'm clear of that sin, I'm clear of that sin, I'm clear of that sin. sin. And if you're looking at one word in particular and your heart's drawn to that, you're like, ah, dodge that bullet. Let's review, okay? Let's review. Strike their fathers and mothers. Never done that, I'm free and clear murderers, haven't done that in years. (laughs) The sexually immoral, the men who practice homosexuality, I don't commit that sin. And slavers, nope, not me. Ah, and what's next? Liars. We're all in the same boat now. It's called the Titanic. Welcome aboard. And if you say that you haven't lied, then you lie now. Every one of us is in the same boat here. Every one of us sees our reflection. And just for good measure, see how he rounds it out? And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. (laughs) Just a, a blanket, just in case anybody thought they were off the hook here. You see, the purpose of the moral law is to show us that we all fall short of it. So, my LGBTQIA friend, if you read this text and you see this and you object to it, would you first of all, first of all, hear my heart? This is the word of God. All right, and it's very clear in this moment. This is not a metaphor, it's not a parable. This is very clear wording. You did read it correctly. All right, don't be don't be mad at me if you take issue with this text. This is the word of God. Your issue is is with the author of this text. And I pray that you'd see. When Christians offer you gospel hope, they don't offer that gospel hope to you condescendingly. We are very much partakers of the same exact grace that we extend to you because our sin is listed in this same list too. We are all caught in this list. Every one of us might see our reflections in this list of a catalog of sins. Christian, do not apologize for the word of God. Do not mitigate it. Try to go around it. It is very clear in what it says but also see your own reflection in it when it calls us out for the sins that we all commit. Now, where does this list end? It ends in the gospel. Did you see that? It doesn't just list us in our sins. Where does the, where's the verse end? Verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. If you've seen your sins reflected in this text and you're being convicted under repentance today, Today is the day of salvation for you, and in Jesus' name, there will be more Christians who walk out of this room than there were who walked into it. So in all of this, Paul moves on to talk about his own experience as being a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but receiving mercy. Do not take verse 13 and stretch it into a teaching on universalism. That is not the intent, and Paul would grossly disagree with that teaching. Rather, he is talking about the mercy that God has shown him. Now, verse 18, he uses a phrase that may be shocking to you, okay? and this this charge, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. There it is again, see, child? In accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Apparently, people saw this in Timothy his whole life and made these prophecies about him, that one day he's gonna be an incredible minister of the gospel, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Warfare? Yes, warfare. Hey, listen, if you... If you came from a a church that teaches the prosperity gospel, this is a bad day for you. All right, look, there's gonna be hugs and coffee for you in the lobby, okay? Because nobody ever read the Bible to you, apparently, and now this is a shock to your system. It's okay, though. It's okay. You're not alone in this. Just don't be shocked by it. What did Peter write to the persecuted church throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, and Asia in AD 64 as the persecution of Nero pervaded heavily against Christians, Look at this in 1 Peter 4 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Why are you shocked, Christians? Don't be shocked at this fiery trial. You serve a holy God amidst a pagan culture. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at your suffering. <laughs> Meanwhile, Christians are being like sawed in half and set on fire. Don't be surprised. Why are you shocked? <laughs> this is Peter's word to the persecuted church around Rome. And then consider Paul's words in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor armor of God. What does armor denote except for warfare? Welcome to the war, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. The words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak this is war. This is why Paul equips his protege Timothy for war. Did you see verse 19, holding to faith and a good conscience? How is it possible to hold to faith and hold to a good conscience? The only meaningful way to say that you have held on to your faith is to have endured a trial, difficulty, a pain in which it would have been easier to acquiesce. It would have been easier to disavow It would have been easier to lose trust in God, but you held fast nonetheless, being sure of what you hoped for and certain of what you did not see. That is a testing of your faith. What does it mean to hold fast to a testimony of a clear conscience? This only comes about in a meaningful way when your conscience is tested. It only comes about in a meaningful way when you are inflicted some sort of pain or it costs you something. In today's culture, that could come about through defying upper management when they insist that you defy the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you choose instead to hold fast to a clear conscience before God and man and not violate the basic moral principles which we inherit from that transcendent moral law which God placed within our hearts and wrote in his word. Now what is the final verse really about? This is striking. This is scary language. Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's striking language. What exactly is Paul talking about here? I believe he's describing excommunication. somebody really being sent out of the protective fold of God and being taught something. Did you see the word taught? That's important. Okay, I've seen Christians who want to take upon the work of both the Holy Spirit and the devil. All right, you want to make sure that somebody feels convicted for their sin, so you convict them. You okay, don't do that. Let the Holy Spirit convict. You even want to do the work of the devil and make sure they suffer consequences for their sin because it's wrong. Look, you worry about your own sin, Christian, Okay, what did Paul do here? He merely handed them over to their own devices. He left them to their own satanic devices so that they would learn, be taught not to blaspheme. Having been taught, they would know. They would walk away with a testimony. His prayer ultimately was about restoration. I believe that this, is, this scary idea of being handed over to Satan is similar to what God does to Job in Job 1 to be tested. God allows Satan to attack Job within certain parameters. There's an ordination certificate on the wall of my office and it says June 1st, 2008. So it's 11 years ago to the day yesterday I was ordained to be a pastor and I can still hear my mentor's voice. I can still hear Jeff's voice. I can hear the tears in his voice. He prayed over me and put his hands on me just like we see Paul lay his hands on Timothy and pray over me that I would rightly divide the word of truth and be a faithful minister of the gospel. I so desperately hope that I make him proud. I'm so grateful for my own Paul. Praise God and thank God for your own Pauls. But consider for a moment that the legacy may have stopped with you. Have you glutted yourself on teaching? Have you spiritually fattened yourself and not passed this wisdom onward? Is it possible that God is calling you to disciple somebody else? If so, I pray that you would obey. You probably already know who it is. Take out your phone right now if you need to before the devil distracts you with something shiny. And if you're if you're a Timothy looking for a Paul, okay, follow me on this. This is very intricate, very complicated. Very difficult. You're gonna walk up. If you're a man, an older man in the faith. If you're a woman, older woman in the faith. Ready? you right, you're gonna do this. You're gonna ask them, would you please disciple me? And that's it. There are graphing calculators under the seats. No more procrastinating, only obedience. Make disciples, amen, Highlands Community Church. So may the timothy find their Timothys, pour into them and disciple them. And may the Timothys find their Pauls and let this legacy continue. Now, I wanna pray on behalf of those in the room who have seen their own sins reflected and cataloged in this very text. And the Holy Spirit of God is convicting you. For you, your discipleship begins now. For you, your discipleship begins with your conversion because you saw your sin named in this text. It could have been homosexuality. It could have been liar. It could have been murder in your heart. It could have been any number of the sins cataloged in this passage. Every one of them is contrary to to sound doctrine. Every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if you feel convicted for that, Praise God for that conviction because you're being drawn by the Holy Spirit of God from death to life. Today is the day of salvation for you. Today, discipleship begins. So, if God is drawing on your heart right now, this is your moment. I believe more Christians are going to walk out of this room than walked into it. So, listen to the Holy Spirit's drawing pray with me now in light of the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God that's come upon your heart by the cataloging of your sins in which you see your reflection in this text to be saved pray with me as the Holy Spirit of God draws you God I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only Son that if I would believe in Him, I would not die, but have everlasting life. And I confess that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. My sin is named in this text and I am convicted by the Holy Spirit. I remain under your wrath, but let me receive the Son today. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that Jesus is the way. I believe that Jesus is the truth. I believe that Jesus is the life and I know there's no way I can come to you, Father, except through Jesus. So right here and now, filled with the Holy Spirit of the living God, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it. Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. Now, God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Bring me to repentance. Bring me home. Bear fruit through my life. Holy Spirit of God, it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand up and worship with us, some of us, for the very first time as brand new believers in Jesus Christ.